It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Before we get to today's show, just a quick production note. This is the last show of 2018. Can you believe it? Don't fret. We will be back in the first week of January, January 3rd. So just a short hiatus while I will try to catch up on my sleep and juggle two very small humans. Not literally, figuratively, of course. Uh, But then we'll be back to normal service uh, and we have some great stuff in the oven for you. Bacon and broilin, etc. Lots of very exciting things coming uh, for 2019, but I also just want to thank you. It has been a tiring but very exciting year, and I just want to say that I appreciate you coming along for the ride, for listening, for rating and reviewing the show. If you haven't done yet, I know you'll do right now, so thank you for that. As I mentioned before, I started this thing on a bit of a whim. Basically, no one was listening when we started out, uh, which wasn't the worst thing in the world because I had no idea what I was doing. But now we have thousands of subscribers, loads of great guests, both in the catalog and on the docket for next year. And I'm hoping, hoping that very soon I'll be able to make a very exciting announcement about something I have been working on these last couple months in the background. It is very exciting, but we're not quite there yet. But all is looking good. And like I said, hopefully I'll be able to um, share that with you all very soon in the not too distant future. So I think it'd be a lot of fun. So fingers crossed. Okay, that's it. Enough of me talking. Let's get to today's show. Yo, technology. What is it all about? I used to think that if you had the skills to be a founder, you should be a founder. And I remember kind of early in my journey, I would really try to push people who didn't want to start companies, start companies. It's like, oh, you know how to code. You've got problems. Just just do it. And I realized it's just like, no, it requires a certain amount of Some people call it like genius. I think it's probably closer to stupidity than genius. It requires a certain amount of something to think you can do almost the impossible. This week on Danny in the Valley, you are in for a treat. Michael Siebel is in the building, or rather I was in his building. Uh, Siebel is the CEO of Y Combinator, which I'm going to call the world's most important accelerator. Its alums include Airbnb, Dropbox, Instacart, Stripe, Reddit, Soylent, if you're into soy-based nutrition. Twitch. Twitch, in particular, is interesting because Siebel was one of the founders of Justin TV, as it was called back then in 2006. Turned into Twitch, of course, and was sold to Amazon, etc. Anyhow, for the last two years, he has run Y Combinator's core accelerator program, which every six months chooses 
200 companies from all over the place, all over the world, hands them $150,000 each in exchange for whatever, 6 7% of the company, provides them mentorship, contacts, and generally tries to set them on the path to world domination. Every once in a while, it actually works. So its top companies today are worth more than $100 billion combined. Those are the top alumni. About a third of that is Airbnb, but still not bad going. And that's actually one of the things we cover. So most companies don't make it. So we talk about the grind that is startups, why it's both easier and harder than ever to launch a company, and what is Silicon Valley's biggest problem. And it's not what you think. So I hope you enjoy the show. And without further ado, here's Michael. Thank you for having me here. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Um, So we're almost at the end of 2018. Mm -hmm. It's been a pretty crazy year for tech in particular. And I thought, who better to speak to about the kind of the state of tech and where it's going and what you're seeing than you. All right. How do things look from the kind of the startup coalface? From our side, really good. Strangely, perhaps some of the negativity in the country and the world has actually gotten startup founders a little bit more interested in solving problems of normal everyday people. And so we are certainly seeing maybe some positive externalities to all of the chaos. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because I do feel like, cause I've, as I said before we got on, uh, I've been here for about two years and it felt like, it feels like it's kind of, in terms of like, if you look at it historically, like the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, frivolity, because we've been at this bull market now for whatever, 10 years. Sure. But you think we're reaching a point where now where people actually start to get serious again? I think what's going on in the public markets and what's going on in the minds of startup founders is two different universes, to be honest. We don't really tend to see frivolity amongst the startup founders. They're mostly really tired working very hard. <laughs> so we tend to discourage frivolity. <laughs> right, right. And just before we go any further, I think it would be useful just for our listeners to just get a sense of your story and how you ended up in this chair. Yeah, so I did two YC startups before working at YC. Uh, the first was called Justin TV. It became a company called Twitch, which helps video gamers stream live video online and sold to Amazon for about a billion dollars in 2014. We went through YC in 2007 with that company and then went through YC again in 2012 with a company called Social Cam, which was a mobile app for sending video to friends and family. We sold that company at $60 million to Autodesk in 2012. And then uh, in 2015, I started working at YC and fall of 2016, a partnership asked me to become the CEO of the Accelerator. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And so how many companies have come through here since you've been running the show? I don't have the exact count, but I think that I've seen over a thousand come through since I've been here, um, which has been a lot. (laughs) 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 To give give you a sense, this batch we call Winter 19 has over 11,000 applicants. Of which you choose how many? The batch will end up being somewhere between 120. 180 and 220 companies. What's the criteria? It's simpler than it might appear. I like to start with what it's not. We're not looking for what people would classically term a great idea. The kind of classical, almost pop culture depiction of a great idea is when I tell you the idea, your mind's blown. You're like, oh my God, that's amazing. I would say that's actually 
more Hollywood than actual real life. The biggest companies out there, their ideas did not seem mind-blowing when they started. I think the most important thing we look at is founders who are not just talking about their business, but executing their business. I think that the reality is that over the last 20 years, it's become easier and easier to actually do work with software on a very shoestring budget. The kind of threshold of what's valuable is shifted from can you raise money to can you build product, launch products, talk to customers. The founders we love are the ones who are not saying, I'll do my startup if I get into YC. They're the ones who are saying, I'm doing my startup, even bootstrapped, even while doing a day job, even while being a student, and they're getting things done. The other quality, which kind of depresses me because I've been a poor communicator most of my life, is just the ability to communicate your ideas clearly. The first question we ask in a YC interview is, what does your company do? The best companies can answer that question cleanly, concisely in 30 seconds without jargon, without anything that sounds like a buzzword or you'd find in some TV commercial, just simple language. I was, uh, we're working on a kind of a, a different podcast project and one of the exercises, you hear 10 words and you know exactly what it is. That's actually really, really hard to do. <laughs> it is. It requires you to be pretty smart to pull it off. We work in our companies a lot with that, actually. And so the, you said 11,000 are applying and you'll, choo you'll choose? 188 to 20. How much of that is automated? Back in the day when we first started, you just printed out all the applications and read them. <laughs> Today, we have a whole suite of software that helps us read applications and grade applications and helps others do as well. So yeah, it's pretty complex. So you mentioned earlier the, the idea of software, all kinds of things from cloud and everything else, making it very easy in theory to kind of come up with something or to create something. Yeah. One, given that there's, it's so much easier, there's got to be a lot more competition than there used to be. And also you have these big beasts like Facebook, Google, et cetera. <laughs> and everybody's like, well, it's harder than ever to kind of build something in the shadow of these big companies. I would say they're both true, but I think the second one is more true. I would say that while it's been easier to build technology today and build software today specifically, I would also say that founders are taking a much more expansive view of where they can build that software. You know, we'll have aerospace companies that are basically differentiating based on their ability to model a wing instead of having to build it and test it. We'll have biotech companies that are trying to do drug discovery with software as a first step versus in the lab. So we see people applying software much more widely than they did when YC started. What I would say, though, is that the big guys are far more powerful today. The big companies, when YC started, Microsoft, Oracle, Yahoo, just had a much less dominant position. I feel as though today the companies that are big, not only are they big, but they're very cognizant of how they got big and how they disrupted the last generation. And they're very, very clearly making moves to prevent new people from disrupting them. It's almost as if like they developed right. an immune system that specializes in what they did to get big. So they're starting to block all the distribution channels and they're starting to put their products ahead of competitors' products and mm. not really have open um, platforms. Like in search results, for example. Right. Example. So I think it's actually quite interesting, but I think in the same time, users are starting to get fed up because they know that the products aren't as good anymore. Eventually, it doesn't matter how you obfuscate. If your products aren't good, you're gonna lose. Well, it's funny because I, just looking at Google now, 
I kind of as a as an act of small rebellion, if I do a search, mm-hmm. there's usually four or five or six ads. <laughs> and even if it's the thing I'm looking for is the first ad, I skip down to the seventh <laughs> where it's not the ad. Because it does feel like I'm effectively just looking at the yellow pages now. Exactly. And weirdly, that company is paying for you to click on when you searched the name of the company. Yeah. <laughs> like, you really shouldn't have to pay for that, right? So I guess the question is, is this time kind of different? Because as you say, before there's Microsoft, before that there's IBM. But just in terms of whether it's the power, the reach, or the kind of unfettered regulatory environment. I think this time's a little different. I wouldn't say that to discourage people because strangely, like I think everyone thought 2008 was a horrible time to create a company and it was one of the best times. I would say when there's a lot of competition, it's not necessarily a bad thing. What I will say is that kind of generally it feels like we're ready for a new, a new consumer platform. And every time there's a new consumer platform, all the rules get rewritten and it's an opportunity for every big company to kind of screw up. Everyone, I think, in the investing community is just excited for for whatever that'll be, whether it's AR or VR or something we haven't even seen yet. Something so that everyone kind of resets to playing on the same level playing field and nobody knows what the right applications are going to be. If you had to bet, I mean, because you're obviously seeing a lot of this stuff. AR, both AR and VR have under-delivered or at least they're delayed dramatically. (laughs) Well, you know, I always look at AR and VR like smartphones. I think everyone likes to rewrite history and say like smartphone revolution and it started with Apple One and they just yeah. like want to forget Blackberry and Palm and Palm Pilots and like there was a 10 plus years of smartphones before the smartphone revolution happened. Yeah. So um that was a P- the PDAs, personal exactly. digital assistant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'd have like plug them in and they like download <laughs> all your magazines and stuff. Yeah. So I won't kind of crap on AR and VR in that whole area. One, because I think it's really ridiculously exciting. Two, because, you know, there was a time in everything's history like that works today when it didn't work. As an investor, if I'm sitting here saying like, well, I don't believe it because it doesn't work today. That seems like basically the stupidest thing I could say. Almost everything we invest in doesn't work today. I think those areas are exciting to me. I think generally anyone trying to create a new consumer platform or anyone trying to exist disrupt an existing dominant consumer platform is really exciting. And counterintuitively, like the more dominant these platforms are, I think in some ways, the more hubris they have, the more they're willing to not pay attention to their users and therefore the more vulnerable they are. And I don't know from where you, from where you're kind of operating, you think about this much, but do you think there should be regulation of some sort of the big guys? Clearly America works better when there's like well-informed regulation. And I think that a lot of tech companies that like to kind of crap on regulation are actually built on regulation from the 90s. That's that's actually how they they are able to be businesses today. The Communications Um, Decency Act, for example. While regulation kind of worries me because of the state of our government in general, um, clearly self-regulation is not something that works very well. In the ideal world, we'd have a government of well-informed people who are writing well-informed regulation. But more importantly, who even cares if the first version of the regulation is well-informed? In the ideal world, we'd have a functioning Congress so that we could iterate our laws when they're not working. So I think that more scares me than anything else. Right. But uh, yeah, I'd love to see good government regulation, of course. You know, I always poke fun at, at Google at this, but, you know, Gmail with their promotions inbox, right? That's basically Gmail taking an open protocol email and making it a closed protocol they control. 
and they did it for your benefit, right? So mm-hmm. you don't even realize that you might not be able to learn about good products and services anymore because you never see them in your inbox. Making your world better by preventing anyone else from selling you anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it seems like there should be something done. Yeah. But do you think it should, would go so far as a breakup? Break I mean, that's kind of the um, what people say, especially in Washington. Break them up, whatever that means. But I don't even yeah, know if that's I, possible. I don't really know either. You know, I was a poli-sci major, but when I moved here, I kind of stopped thinking that government was going to create solutions. And so I haven't really studied it. Yeah. What I will say is that, you know, my perception of what happened in the 90s in, in Microsoft was just the government getting involved slowed Microsoft down enough to give other folks some space. So for all I know, lawsuits will get it done, not even laws passed. Right. Um, the companies at the top are proactively trying to prevent other companies from disrupting them. And if like, anyone doesn't believe that, then they're just like, eyes are completely closed. Yeah. Um, and it's logical for them to do it. Yeah, it's it's competitive environment. They're going to try to kill people who are going to try to kill them. Exactly. But like, it's antithetical to the internet being a place with open platforms, a place where you get to choose the products that help you the best. But the way you're describing is effectively capitalism, kind of capitalism versus the internet. No, no, no. I would say that what I'm describing is that the best capitalism is done on a fair playing field. And what I would say is that there's a certain set of companies here who have control of the basic distribution points in the internet. And I would argue that that might allow them to play unfair. Yeah, and that argument does seem to be gaining traction on the other side of the pond. Fines, activity, etc. in yeah. Europe. And it's funny because I feel as though, on, on one hand, you know, folks in America look at that and they're like, shoo shoo, but I feel as though... I talk to a lot of people who just, they kind of like look down their nose at the kind of the stupid Europeans and, oh God, you know, <laughs> rolling their eyes and it's kind of like... <laughs> It does need to be something here. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's like, you know, it's funny. Like, I definitely think that (laughs) one, with government regulation, less is more. But two, like when there are problems and people are trying, obvious problems and people are trying to address them, just like shitting on them for no, like for that effort is pretty stupid. You know, like constructive improvements would be far better than just saying, oh, those folks don't get it because like. I think they kind of do get it. Yeah. And what year did you arrive here? 2006. And that was to start Justin TV. Yeah. Things were a little different back then. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was actually my question in terms of, I mean, beyond the obvious of like, there weren't smartphones. Just for background, I grew up in the Bay Area. Oh, cool. So you've seen it for the whole time. Yeah. And then I left for 15 years and then I came back a year and a half ago. So pretty dramatic change over that 15 years from 2000 two to 2000 whatever it was 16 yeah i'm just curious from where what you have seen or what kind of sticks out to you in terms of how things have changed i think that there's like two things going on here one i think that a lot of the people who are commenting on this are commenting about how their 20s were more exciting than their 30s (laughs) and that's just how the world is (laughs) (laughs) it was better back in my day it was so better back then you know and they're like trying to make these like very grandiose statements about the world and it's like no some part of the world being a better place back then is just growing up i would say on the other side 
in the kind of popular sentiment around the big companies, I think is more negative now than it was back then. People were more excited about the up and coming large tech companies back then than they are today. I think you can also make the case though that in a company's timeline, it's more exciting when it's going through that initial kind of bell curve than when it's kind of maturing and ossifying and so on and so forth. I just hate all of these kind of doom and gloom of the valley's not what it used to be. It's like, like that just sounds like grandpa, you know, like America's not what it used to be. Get off my lawn. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, I was 23 when I came out. I think that if I was 23 years old coming out to the valley today, this would seem like one, the most startup friendly city in America, maybe the world. Two, it would feel like a place with tons of opportunity. Three, it'd feel like a place where like tons of things are changing and very dynamic. I would feel excited to be here. Yeah. But to your point, I think it is what's interesting is that Facebook, Google, Apple, et cetera, they are they are the establishment yes. now. And and what's so funny is that like they were big back then, but there's something different about being the biggest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're the, the amount of responsibility and criticism and expectation when you're the biggest, you know? It's almost like, I mean, like, if you're the oil companies, you're probably like, oh, it's nice to be out of the spotlight for a while, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Well, it's kind of, you know, social networking is the new big tobacco type of thing. It's exactly. Exactly. common um, comparison. There you go. How big was the first batch of YC? Eight. Mm-hmm. Eight companies. Eight companies. Yeah. It's gotten a little bigger. Yeah, now it's going to be roughly 200. Yeah. Does it work as well? I would say it works a lot better, strangely, and that's not intuitive. To give you kind of a comparison, back then at YC, the spread between what the most successful founder had done in YC and what the least successful founder had done was this. If you wanted to talk to somebody you're holding had. your fingers very, very close. We're not on video, thin, so yeah. Yeah, about maybe half a centimeter. <laughs> there you go. I see you. Yeah. So if you wanted to talk to someone who had raised a Series A, raised a Series B, managed a company of over 50 people, just any of the kind of things that happen when your company is successful, you need to go outside of the YC network for that. Today, you don't. When you wanted to go fundraise, the YC's total knowledge of the investor world was also tiny. Uh, remember, back then it was even located in, in Boston. So our visibility on the West Coast world was extremely tiny. Yeah. Today, there's an investor database with every investment and reviews and commentary and so on and so forth across thousands of investors. There are like so many things like that where scale has basically provided our founder with either more information or more access to information than they had back then. I think the third thing, though, is this weird misconception. I think there's this misconception that back then everyone was like best friends. And like what's funny is like I was around pretty early. Like Justin and I were my friends when they went through the first batch of YC. Certainly relationships were made. But to think that all of those companies became best friends is just false. It's just not true. It's like a really fun rewritten story. Yeah. And I would say that today, sometimes founders have the expectation they're going to come into YC and become best friends with everyone in their batch. And we have to tell them straight away, like, that's not going to happen. Most of the time you're going to be working. And then otherwise you'll be talking to your customers and then working again. But founders certainly do make many more relationships and many have many more opportunities to find kind of their tribe within YC today with 
you know, 400 plus founders in a batch than when there were, you know, many right. fewer. Because when they come out here, there's whatever, 200 odd companies. And how long are they here? Is it three months? Three months, yeah. And are they kind of here every day? No, 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 they're not. That's the cool yeah. thing. Like everything that I think people imagine with an accelerator. Well, like, everybody calls this a boot camp. Yeah. And it feels like, you know, there's a bunch of nerds in combat boots running around. Doing drills and stuff, right? <laughs> I think YC is so much not a program and not a curriculum. There are very few good analogies. I think everyone wants to reach towards boot camp or university. We don't house folks. They find their own housing. We don't give them office space. They don't co-work. They all typically work out of their own apartments. It's like, what the hell do they get then? <laughs> we give them $150,000. <laughs> um, and then the founders will come to YC once a week. Yeah. for a dinner to interact with one another to hear a great speaker um, and to do group office hours, which is effectively like a check-in on how they're yeah. progressing. And then a lot of the values delivered one-on-one through office hours. Still, most of the like most important advising work is just done with one partner in a room with two founders. And that part hasn't changed in their entire history. Right. And that's when kind of the nitty-gritty advice giving happens. And I think that's how it should be. Do you think we've reached peak accelerator? Because I feel like I could spend, if I went once a week to an accelerator, yeah, I'd probably be good till 2022. I think the rest of your life. Yeah. I think you'd be game over. <laughs> I mean, the kind of casual number I've heard thrown around is that there are 3,000 accelerators in the world. I think every day you would have asked me that question in the last five years, I could have said we've hit peak accelerator. Unfortunately, I don't believe that there are the number of good advice givers to support that number of accelerators. And I don't think it serves a company to go to an accelerator that's not top class. To your point, if there's, say, 3,000, how do you know what's good and what isn't? So look at the track record. What companies have come out of it? Yeah. The analogy I always try to defeat is I think people think about accelerators like universities. And it's, well, if you didn't get into Harvard, but you got into Princeton, that's almost as good. And then my comeback to that is like, okay, well, let's say Harvard had a 96% graduation rate. Princeton had a 2% graduation rate. Would you think Princeton was just as good? No. And of those thousand companies, what's your cocktail story? Your cocktail party story where you're like, oh, I saw this one company and they were trying to kind of, I don't know, colonize Mars with dogs or something. Surely you've got to have one. Well, strangely, one, one, I don't go to cocktail parties. (laughs) (laughs) And weirdly, and this might sound really horrible, weirdly, the YC kind of world is so big now. It's you know, 4,000 total founders. And I came up in it so aggressively that like most of my casual conversations are with people who are some way touch YC. <laughs> so we don't tend to talk about YC. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like we're not like, it's, it's like we're not trading startup stories because it's a whole bunch of people who do startups. And so right. it's not like, a, it's not novel. It's like, oh, I remember when da 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 was like that. And uh, yeah, I do too. I, I've been your friend for a while. Right, right, like, right, yeah. right, right, right. So strangely, yeah, no, it's like. Is um, there one company that you were like, wow, that's totally, I can't believe somebody just pitched that or an idea? You know what I'll tell you? On the flip side, and this might not be what it's looking for, what's, what you're looking for, but what's interesting about YC is that if you're a partner long enough, your pet ideas get pitched back to you. I wanted to build software for developing countries. And the kind of idea behind it was that the developed countries have all of this infrastructure and bureaucracy and humans 
that would kind of block the really the soft verification of their processes. But developing countries don't. You know, the comeback to that is like, oh, developing countries are corrupt and da 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 da. And kind of my comeback to that was always like, even a corrupt leader wants to see their country do better. And I ended up doing YC, and about a year or two later, this company walks in, one hacker, one business person from Palantir, saying, we want to make Palantir a developing world, and it's called Zenesis. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I don't have to work on that. (laughs) (laughs) They were great. We funded them. And so I think that's actually more fun, is when you're like, oh, like, wouldn't it be cool if this happens? And then, like, someone else independently thought of it. Like, and that's oftentimes why I hate kind of throwing ideas out there. Like, I don't want people to like pitch me the ideas that I like. Like, that's like, you know, silly. But if you're really passionate about something and it happens to be something I'm passionate about, it's like, that's pretty exciting. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code SUMMER. I have a question about diversity. Yes. Feels like... A lot of the big companies uh, seem to be run by, you know, mostly white or Asian yep. men who are well-to-do. Yeah. And then they're shocked when things go out into the real world and they're used in ways they couldn't have conceived of. Sure. If you have people from different parts of the country, the world, socioeconomic backgrounds, they would come up with better ideas or at least show you where the potholes are. Yeah. One, YC takes diversity really seriously. And in an interesting way... I think YC and startups in general kind of shape what the valley is going to be like 10 years from now. But what's interesting is that I really separate out startup diversity from the tech world diversity problem. I think that Google's challenge is how do I find hundreds or maybe even thousands or tens of thousands of potential employee candidates. I think at YC, we're dealing with individual founders 
can change things. Literally, you know, Airbnb, it's three founders, and they made a product that now touches every country in the world. And so we have a slightly different challenge. What I like about YC, and one of the reasons why I decided to work at YC, was that its core philosophy was always the group of people who are well-networked can get into the Silicon Valley network and get access to resources and money here. And the group of people who can build amazing products and companies, the overlap between them is small. And we always liked this group of people who didn't have the network. And to me, that represents the underrepresented founder very well. Um, it represents a whole bunch of other founders as well. But the person without the network who's like, what is my on-ramp into Silicon Valley? And can that on-ramp not require me to know someone or pay right. a ton of money or so on and so forth? So the fact that with YC, you can just apply. You never have had to met us ever. Um, you can be anywhere in the world. That was always the thing that kind of got me. I was like, yes, that is how it should be. Um, that's how resources should be distributed. And so YC has always been about that. If you look at the past five years, I think it's hard pressed to find a very good investor who's invested in more underrepresented founders than YC. With that being said, we're, we're not yet at population parity. Yeah. So um, we have a lot more work to do and there's a lot more work we are doing. I do think that while discrimination is an important problem that I think um, is certainly having some effect on underrepresented founders getting into the valley, I, I actually think it's not the number one problem. I actually think the number one problem is information flow. What do you mean? Disproportionately, it's harder for underrepresented founders to understand how the valley works and to understand how to get started. Information is not flowing to those communities as quickly. It's much less likely that you might know someone who created a company right. or got funded. And so um, a lot of the time what I'm doing is I'm finding talented people and just telling them how the game works. And it's like really hard to do well at a game when you don't know the rules. And if only some people know the rules and other people don't, that's a huge starting advantage. So a lot of the time I'm talking to people who are outside of the barrier, don't really understand the rules yeah. of the valley, who might have ideas, might have talent, have all the things they need, but they don't know the rules. Um, and they a lot don't know of where YC, the door is to get in. Exactly. And a lot of what YC does is kind of puts its advice straight up online for anyone to consume. And what's interesting is like, you definitely see this internationally. Well, you'll see founders. Yeah, I did a big trip to Nigeria, for example, in 2016. And I met founders who were quoting Paul Graham, Y Combinator essays directly. Never met the dude, never been within a thousand miles of the dude. Yeah. And he affected their path in the tech. And so um, to me, like that was so interesting. It was like, wow, if you can just be the one putting the information that talented people need to execute out in the world. And if you can have an on-ramp that is not based on who you know, like you can make the valley change. And I always kind of think about YC as in some ways like the startup world self-correcting. Like I think the startup world kind of is an organism and like the fact that resources were not being distributed equitably is a problem. It doesn't make the organism thrive. And YC is kind of like, okay, the organism realizing, oh no, it should be done another way. Right. Um, and it was very much a product of the tech. And like PG was a tech founder. Like this was an internally created solution, not some 
externally implemented solution. Yeah. Beyond just putting that out there in the world for anybody to consume, yeah. is there any other way you can kind of crack that nut? Because as you say, there are all these barriers and like, you know, a lot of people won't even have heard of Y Combinator, even yeah. if they have a really good idea and are smart and are trying to solve big problems. A lot of what we do to crack that nut is to go to find the this group of people where they are. So um, whether it's through our college outreach or through specialized programs like Code 2040, which is a nonprofit that focuses on technical talent and underrepresented communities, or a company that we've been talking to when we funded a number of years ago named Jopwell, which is trying to find employment opportunities for um, underrepresented um, young people. A lot of what we've been doing is trying to move into those communities and proactively spread the message instead of waiting for them to find us. I think the second thing, though, um, is every time we fund an underrepresented founder and we treat them with respect and they feel as though they had a good experience with the, with the program, they become an advocate. And I think that can't be said enough. It was interesting. We had um, one team who was building a, a product for, for women, was consumer packaged goods, female founder. And like, I remember that you know, she very distinctly said to me, I really expected to be treated differently in YC. And I was so refreshed that I felt like the YC partners were as hard on me as they were on every other company. Like I was not being treated with kid gloves. I wasn't being seen as like a, you know, quota filling, you know, right. type of role. And to me, like that's also ridiculously important. Right. Um, no one treated me with kid gloves when I went through YC. <laughs> <laughs> so is it kind of brutal? Uh, I think startups are brutal. I, I always like to equate it to the MBA. You know, if some ninth grader comes up to you and says, it's my goal in life to make the MBA. What do you think my shot is? And you're trying to be honest with them. You're going to say... Like very, very, very low. Boom. Same thing with startups. That's the world we're in. And so I think being dishonest doesn't serve the people well. Yeah. I actually spoke with Justin because mm -hmm. I know he's tweeted a lot about like how difficult startups are. Yeah. How often do you see people just kind of throw in the towel or break down or... I mean, because it does feel like there's a yeah. lot of psychological yeah. stuff going on here in terms of... Your role. All the time. And I think what's cool about the Valley is that I don't think people are really giving shit about it, which is great. Startups are hard. Like failing at something that's almost impossible is not a negative. Failure happens constantly. What's interesting is within the YC network, um, we built this tool uh, within the last year that basically allows you to see any company that any YC founder used to work at or works at today. Mm. It's been so clear how talented our founder base is because regardless whether their startups worked or not, so many of our founders are now off as execs in important companies or doing other important work or partners at VC funds. Clearly, they're talented people. And, you know, startups are one of those things where even a talented person can often fail. I hate when people try to equate startups with something like being a doctor or a lawyer it's like, you know, that's a practice. If you follow a set of rules and guidelines, like you can ensure you do a good job. You could do everything right with your startup and still fail. In fact, that's probably the majority of tech cases. Yeah. It's a game we're in. Well, so it's like that, that um, quote around restaurants, like whatever, nine out of 10 restaurants fail within the first year. Yeah. What, in terms of what you see, is it similar? In terms of the ratio? I mean, 
I mean, what we tell the companies when they come into YC at the kickoff is what's most likely the case is that only between one and four companies per batch will actually be able to fulfill their complete vision at scale and really make the thing that they want and solve the problem they want, you know, globally. Right. And it's actually not bad. I mean, it's not bad. Right. But that means most people will stumble somewhere along the way. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, shit's hard. Yeah. <laughs> like, like anyone who doesn't, it, it's funny because it's like, um, I used to think that if you had the skills to be a founder, you should be a founder. And I remember kind of early in my journey, I would really try to push people who didn't want to start companies, start companies. It's like, oh, well, you know how to code. You've got problems. Just, just do it. And I realized it's just like, no, it requires a certain amount of something. Some people call it like genius. I think some people call it stupidity. I think it's probably closer to stupidity than genius. It requires a certain amount of something to think you can do almost the impossible. And, and like also that, a willingness to kind of sacrifice much of your personal life. Exactly. And I think that like that's such an important point too. Like the idea that you can do something almost impossible without sacrifice seems laughable, right? And like when you hear about like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, like first in the practice, laughed at last out, you know, a thousand shots. Like I heard one day, one time that like Kobe Bryant was like practicing for the USA basketball team and like the international game was more three point oriented and the coach told him you got to get good at three points. And he decided he was going to take a thousand threes a day until he got his, and I'm just like <laughs> thinking about that mindset. It's like, oh, well I have to do good at this. I guess I just have to put in an impossible amount of work. Okay, great. I'll do it. Yeah. Um, I heard a Kobe story about how somebody showed up at this free agent signing. Yeah. And he's like, oh, you want to work out tomorrow? And the guy's like, mm, sure. And he'd been in the NBA for a long time. Yeah. And they showed up at Staples Center at whatever, 7 in the morning, and ran the stairs of the entire... Every, every... Every, every up and down, <laughs> every one of them. And, they, you know, guy's throwing up. And he's just like, he's just like, this is what I do. It's like, sounds terrible. I know, right? That is, I think that's actually... Isn't that such a hilarious point? For as successful as Kobe Bryant's career has been, I don't. I think it's really hard to describe his life anything other than fairly terrible. Yeah, like same with Michael Jordan. Does not sound like a nice person yeah. at all. But but I'm not even speaking about their like personalities. I'm yeah. more just like if you looked at their daily agenda and how many of those things would you be like, oh, I'd love to do that. I feel like it's like bordering around zero every day. Yeah. And I think that's the life of a startup founder. And I think that like. Once again, if we lie about it, we're not helping you win. We can't, we can't lie about it. It's something that we're very straightforward about. And looking at what is happening now at Facebook, Google, et cetera. I mean, I look at Google, I think it's really interesting. It was like best place to work in the world for years on. Now they're having 20,000 people walk out and people talk about strikes, et cetera. Do you look at the way they have approached growth and, and then tell your startup companies, you know, you have to think about some of these things that perhaps a generation ago you did not in terms of whether it's building culture or how you build your products and how you approach competition, the market regulators, what have you. Cause it does seem that they've just, especially in Facebook's case, trying to effectively reinvent the product when it's already with 2 billion people. Yeah. It's hard. It's really hard. I think, um, one, that's an important message but two, that's not a message that we spend a lot of time talking about for a very specific reason. Most people die before that's important. 
their companies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, most, most of their companies die before that's important. And that's not to say that that's not important pretty early on, but I would argue that, you know, there's a thing called product market fit mm-hmm. and, and kind of the term is overused and used incorrectly, but in effect what product market fit indicates is a moment where the founding team needs to shift from solely being focused on the product and solving the problem of the customer to building an organization that can do that. And I think that at that moment, suddenly culture becomes ridiculously important. And I think that when you're a post-product market fit company in today's environment, you see like that's when the lessons of Facebook and Google are very relevant. And if you don't do the wrong right thing then, it's going to scale up. I'd argue that a lot of those decisions are made um, you know, when a company's around somewhere between 10 and 30 people. I think the other way where this is interesting is something we touched on in the beginning, what you decide to work on in general. And I think that what we're seeing more and more is founders that are taking on more ambitious, social, socially conscious problems. Not a dog walking app, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we have a company named Promise that's looking to try to end unnecessary incarceration. It's a big problem in America. Um, and it turns out a lot of people are in jail because they can't pay bail before conviction. So we don't even know if they're guilty yet. Right. And they're in jail. When you think about kind of all the things you can work on, this is an important problem. And that affects your culture. That affects who's interested in working at your company and why they want to work there. And that can kind of have an impact from day one. So um, I feel like those two things are happening. One, the founders are more sensitive because they're seeing what's happening Facebook and Google. But two, the founders are more interested in directly solving big problems, um, right. socially conscious problems. And what's interesting is like the companies I see going after this, they're not nonprofits. They're not saying, oh, I want to not make money. Yeah. But they are saying, I want to solve an, a, a problem that with institutional, like national importance as opposed to I want to kind of optimize part of my life. That's already pretty good. Has money changed where you're seeing the startup scene? Because Facebook, Google, et cetera, they pay pay people a lot of money. They do. In ways that just people weren't getting compensated even five years ago. Yeah. Um, Making it much harder, I would imagine, if I want to do something, well, I'm getting paid whatever, three, four hundred, five hundred grand, whatever it may be, to leave... When I can, you know, have my Tesla and my this and my that, and I'm like living a very yeah. nice life. I think it's. I think it certainly has an impact. I would say though that like, I think this is another one of those things that's a little bit overemphasized. Mm. The big companies also paid a lot more, 2006, and startups always find it hard to hire. That's not a new thing. I think that there exists a set of employees who only want to work at a big company. There's a set of employees who are almost have an allergy to big companies. And there exists a set of employees in the middle that can go either yeah. way. And I think that the economics moves that middle set of employees slightly. But I hate these arguments in isolation because while Facebook pays more now, on the flip side, working at Facebook's got to feel about two times worse right now. I was going to say, <laughs> I, it does feel like there's a, like, it's kind of like a 2008 a financial crisis. And you say you were an investment banker. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I work at Facebook. And so how much money 
compensates for that. I don't know. <laughs> and so, you know, I, 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 that's kind of why sometimes I hate these arguments because it's like, oh, well, if we look at it from one angle, it looks like this. But like, actually, there are a lot of different angles. And, yeah. and I would say also, there's never been more capital for early stage and the later stage founders. So the ability for the startup to not match Facebook salaries, but yeah. certainly to offer something is also greater than it's ever been. Right. So is there an effect? Sure. Yeah. But like, I feel like it's not some like, you know, tsunami of like, yeah. you know, none of our companies have hired for the last five years because of Facebook. That's not true at all. But the idea that there is potentially some kind of stigma with some of these bigger companies now. Yeah. Do you see that? I see. Not only do I see a stigma, I see a stigma around should I be in tech at all? Oh, really? Yeah. I, I see people asking the question, if I don't believe in what the company is doing, why am I working there? It's funny. Like, that's almost like the ultimate rejection of banking, right? <laughs> like, that's yeah. the, like, I'm um, going to go be a third grade oh, teacher. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me go do something where I can see a much more direct connection between my work and the impact. Uh, I think that's an important change that's happening right now. I think it's fueling a bunch of interesting stuff. I mean, when you think about a lot of the hard tech companies, that's one of their core advantages. You have a company like Cruise, you know, we're building self-driving cars, or a company like SpaceX, right? Like, a company that can make you imagine. You know, if you're an employee at Facebook, I don't know what you're imagining anymore. Do you see our ad revenue? We're not buying it. Killing it. <laughs> um, and, I think, and I think, you yeah. know, Google's interesting because I feel like it's done a little bit better at kind of playing in those worlds, but like, on the inside, most people in Google are working on something that literally they do not give a shit about. Um, yeah. I still think the strongest point a startup has is when talking to an employee that actually gives a shit about what they do. Like, where else can you work? Right. <laughs> you know, like, where yeah. else can you? The big company can almost never match your passion with something that it's working on. It's yeah. very, very hard. Unless you are world class. You know, if you're a world class AI person... Google can put you in an amazing place. Yeah. Um, but most of the time, inbox, outbox. Yeah. You mentioned AI. Yep. It feels like it's everywhere, but I'm trying to understand what it actually is. It feels like much of it's branding in terms of what you guys are seeing. <laughs> Do you see this, uh, this idea of kind of whether it's generalized AI or actually quite useful specific AIs for certain things? Mm-hmm. You see that as a reality? Because, you know, the, the, the response to AI, you know, AI is coming, the machines are rising, et cetera, is always like, autocorrect still doesn't work. <laughs> Can my spell check yeah, just nail it for Exactly. Me? <laughs> I think, first, I am absolutely not an expert in AI. Yeah. Um, second, I would say that there is some aggressive rebranding of machine learning going on because machine learning sounds less cool than AI. It does sound way less cool. Yeah. It's 50% um, less cool. Yeah, I think like maybe 1,000% less cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so at YC, we see companies that I would say are actually trying to build AI companies, trying to build companies that really like kind of try to create transformational change. And then on the other side, we see a lot of companies that are trying to leverage machine learning so that we can accomplish a task that otherwise would take this long and yeah. significantly less time. So the distinction between machine learning and AI, just for the listeners, is machine learning is basically algorithms that just get better. Yep. AI. Effectively can design its own algorithms. It can do its own work. It's kind of a ridiculously exciting 
But one of the themes that kind of always gets me, one of the things that always gets me to think about how the world works is that does the money follow the hype or does the hype follow the money? And like you can't create major breakthroughs without investing a lot of money. You know, in certain areas that I find exciting from a technology perspective, I love the hype because if the hype's driving money into it, maybe an opportunity to be created. So in AI, like there'll be amazing improvements in the average person's life if we actually can invent AI. Yeah. So part of me is like, oh, it's great that we were going to call everything AI. Like if that's going to shove more money into it and get more people interested in studying it, awesome. You know, same thing with SpaceX, same thing with electric vehicles. Like so much of this stuff costs money. We could put money into tanks or we could put it into things that make the world better. Yeah. Like if it just requires a little bit of hype, let's hype it. So that hype versus money, cart, horse, etc. Yeah. Scooters. <laughs> Is the hype driving the money or the money driving the hype? <laughs> I was saying, I, I asked because I was just about a 25 minute walk from my office. I was like, I should take a scooter, but I just, I, can't, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I feel like I'd be letting myself down somehow. I think that there are certain markets where scooters are transformational. And I think there's certain markets when they absolutely aren't. So like, where would it be transformational? Like in um, a warm weather, a warm weather dense city, city. With dense city with with really bad traffic. I mean, like like Bombay. In some ways, yeah, in some ways you can see scooters as like an extension of like like motor scooters. Yeah. Like, and there are cities in this world that are dominated by motor scooters, right? And I've been in cities where like there are places you can't get to in a car. Like, you just sorry if yeah. you live there, you cannot get there. And so, from that perspective, scooters can be like massive, right? But then on the flip side, you have these cities that were like designed with cars or have been re-engineered to be 100% accessible with cars and that are like cold half the year. And then the scooter seems a little bit less yeah. transformational. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I feel like painting every city with the same brush is a little silly. Um, I do feel like there was tons of enthusiasm um, in the middle. In the middle. <laughs> in the middle. Yeah. I definitely think that ride sharing was more revolutionary than scooters. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say that. Like, ride sharing, like, that was like, oh, wow. Like, I look at the city different. Like, I remember just little things. Like, I remember my friends and I were always like, we have to live close to each other. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, that doesn't really matter. Um, well, in London with the black cabs, which are very, very, very expensive and often don't take cards and all this stuff. And just is kind of just a difficult service. Yeah. Uber has just completely transformed. I mean, they've obviously run into their own problems there, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, as they have everywhere. But living in the city has changed. Yes. Yeah. Same with LA. I would argue same here. We had this weird circumstance where there were taxis. There's a theory of taxis. You might see a taxi yeah. and you might not, you know? Yeah. And you're just like, so what do I do? And now it's like, it's not a, if you have to get from A to B, it's not a question of whether you can do it or not. Or you don't assign a probability to it. That's been transformational. Yeah. We'll see. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that is it. 2018 is a wrap. Merry, merry, merry Christmas. I want to thank Michael for taking the time. I want to thank you for listening. And I'll be back in 2019. And in the meantime, I will, I'll be writing this week. So if you feel so inclined, do check out the Sunday Times. I think I'm writing a, a big thing on Google this week and uh, their culture crisis there. So do check that out. You can find it online as well, thetimes.co.uk. 
can find me on the Twitters, at Danny Fortson. You can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And yeah, I'll generally be around and back at the coalface in the new year. So thank you again. Thank you to Michael. And that is a wrap. Have a great holiday with your family, with your people. And we'll talk to you next year. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.